figure out if it works today. Um, hope everybody is having a good week, and I hope you came to worship this morning, prepared to hear God's Word as He uh, speaks to us uh, still through His Word by the power of His Holy Spirit. As, uh, as the Word is read and as the Word is preached, God speaks to all of us. Um, and this week... Um, this week's a tough week as far as um, preaching God's Word goes, uh, not because it is hard to understand, but because the nature of the subject is a little tough. And, um, and sometimes I think uh, it's hard even to read uh, some of the things that, that did in fact happen among the people of God. But... The reality of it is, is that all Scripture is God-breathed, and all Scripture is profitable for reproof, for correction, for teaching, and for training in righteousness. Amen? We believe that. And, um, and today, we're looking at Genesis 34, and the point of this passage, I'll just let the cat out of the bag right from the beginning, the point of this passage is to pursue godliness, uh, because very often the world is going to tempt us and push us and squeeze us into pursuing its opposite, which is worldliness. And you don't, you don't hear maybe a whole lot these days. When I was a kid, you know, we would hear sermons on this, you know. You got to stay away from worldliness, you know. And you need to avoid worldliness. And a lot of times uh, I came from a fairly conservative church background, and so worldliness, you know, took the form of real obvious stuff, you know, that you ought to avoid, like, you know, women ought to have appropriate skirt length, and, um, and you know, you ought to not maybe, you know, open certain beverages um, at all. Uh, and uh, if you play cards, you know, not anything that had faces on it, because uh, that's gambling, and um, you know, uh, if you drink caffeine, well, that that that'll definitely send you to hell, and you know <laughs> these kinds of things, right? And sometimes people get into that. Um, I celebrate caffeine. <laughs> Behind every successful person is a strong amount of coffee. Okay, but here's the thing. Okay, a lot of times. A lot of times that stuff is real easy to avoid, but it's not actual worldliness, right? No one ever, uh, no one ever uh, was cut off from their relationship with God because they like to pe- play hearts around their dining room table. Uh, that's, that's not really a problem. Uh, despite what you may have heard, God does not disapprove of you drinking a glass of wine, okay? Um, but here's the thing, what worldliness is, is a way of accommodating yourself to the unbelieving world around you, such that you are no longer distinct in the way that you behave, in the way that you think, in the way that you act. And you might claim to be a follower of the living God and even worship Him regularly at a good Bible-teaching church like this one, but in your day-to-day life, you live like everybody else around you. And worldliness, a lot of times, doesn't start out as a real conscious decision. It, it a lot of times, starts on other grounds, like, you know, I'm wanting to find some friends, 
to hang out with or I'm wanting to make some money and advance my career. And sometimes I just want to fit in and not be so uncomfortable in the world around me and not feel so out of step over all the time. But over time, whatever that desire is that's driving it, what happens is, is that you allow the surrounding culture to sort of squeeze you into its mold so you sort of take on its shape. And you start looking less and less like Jesus and more and more like everybody else. And when we last saw Jacob and his family, they had met up with Esau on the other side of the Jordan, and that reunion went very well. Uh, They weren't attacked. In fact, they were embraced. And uh, Esau kind of even reluctantly uh, receives the peace offering from his brother. And then he goes to Sukkoth, and he lives there for a while, and then he journeys off towards Shechem. And he, there he builds an altar uh, to God, and he names the altar El Elohe Israel, that God is the God of Israel. And it all seems really good on the surface. You know, Jacob is back in the land. He's built an altar for the first time. He's worshiping the true God. And that's all good because this little family is literally the most important group of people on the planet at this time. These are the people who are carrying the revelation of God. These are the people through whom the Messiah is going to come. These are the people who are going to give rise to the scriptures that are going to uh, be able to bring life to the entire world. So this little family is a very, very important group of folks. In fact, As I said, there is no more important group of people on the earth at the time that these folks are alive. God is redeeming the world through this family. But there's a problem. And the problem is that over time, the people of God in this little family are being assimilated into the pagan culture around them. And that assimilation is going to produce absolutely tragic consequences for them and for the people around them. So if you've got your Bible, I want you to turn to Genesis 34. We're going to look at the whole chapter, but we'll start with just the first four verses. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor, saying, Get me this girl for a wife. Uh, Jacob has moved his family close to the city of Shechem. The city is built at the crossroads of some ancient trade routes, which makes it an ideal location to make a great deal of money. And at this point, Jacob is in middle age. His family is large. Remember, he's still crippled from his encounter with God on the banks of the Jabbok uh, at Peniel. And he's well past the age when sleeping out in the field at night with the sheep is an appealing idea. You know, we all kind of get to that point where camping no longer sounds fun, at least if I have to sleep on the ground, you know. So, um, you know, maybe we'll go on a wilderness trip or something, but we're going to take an air mattress with us, and maybe a second one, you know. And uh, 
And so Jacob is trying to kind of enhance his level of prosperity. He wants a house and a stable, prosperous life. And there's really nothing necessarily wrong with any of that, of course. Uh, and in fact, that's what God has promised to give him in the land, that God, that God said, you know, look, I'll bless you and I'll provide you with, with all manner of material blessings and I will give you a large family and I'll give you possession of the whole land to live in it as a permanent possession. But he is living next to a city full of pagan people. And the pagan people that he lives among uh, have a very attractive aspect to their culture. Uh, It's prosperous. The city is prosperous. The the city offers uh, protection from the surrounding area. You know, it's a place where you can flee to if things get dangerous. You can be inside the city walls and have a measure of protection. There are armed men in the city, uh, you know, as, as sort of a police force as well as a defense force. And you're, you have more security. You're not out there isolated on your own. And then on top of that, the worship of these people is very sensual. Uh, there are all kinds of, you know, it's a fertility deity that they worship, uh, which is a nice way from, of, of saying essentially that they worship the god of, um, of reproduction and sex. And they bow down to Baal and his consort Asherah. There are a variety of temple prostitutes that you can visit. And if you'd like to start yourself a religion up uh, where you can get a lot of adherence very quickly, just tell people that they, when they go to the brothel, it is not sinful, it is worship. And that's what they are doing. And it's a very attractive religion. And God says it is evil, it is abominable, it is, it is uh, absolutely detestable before him, what they are doing. And it's the reason that Jacob's descendants are, are going to drive the Canaanites out of the land. It's because in addition to this, there's also child sacrifices and so forth. It's an evil, nasty, wicked religion that they're into. But nonetheless, it's appealing at a certain level to a certain type of sinful desire that people might have. And, and on top of that, it seems to be working because, after all, everybody's crops are growing and people are rich and life is good. And in that environment, it's really easy to start accommodating. And that is what starts to happen. Because as we'll see next week uh, in chapter 35... Some of the members of Jacob's family have started worshiping the pagans' gods. They have statues in the house of these pagan gods, and they're worshiping them. And in addition to that, Jacob's daughter, Dinah, it sounds all very innocent, but it says that Jacob's daughter went out to be with the women of the land. These pagan women. Baal-worshipping women. And she is with them apparently enough that she starts to become basically indistinguishable from a pagan Canaanite. And Shechem, who is the son of the local king, sees her, goes, you know, um, I'm the prince. 
I can have whatever I want. And he grabs her and rapes her. And after he rapes her, he continues to lust after her and decides that he, he wants to marry her. And so he keeps her in his house and he says, look here, get me this girl for a wife. Tells his dad, do whatever you have to. Uh, those of you who are women, by the way, can you just imagine the horror of this scene? Not only has this, has this man grabbed you and raped you, but now he is keeping you as a prisoner in his house, and he intends to marry you to legitimize what is going on. People eventually, by the way, become whatever they worship. And if you worship a violent sexual deity, it is not surprising to find violent sexual crimes being committed in your midst. And he wants to sanctify his rape, legitimizing it by marrying the girl he has defiled. And it's not uncommon in those days. By the way, it's still not. In the Middle East, there, there are laws all over, the, all over the place, except in Israel, incidentally, that if you rape a young girl, you can legitimize it by marrying her. It just passed a law like that in Jordan. It's not rape, it's just energetic premarital activity, I guess. And it's sin, and it's evil. And, uh, you know, the Canaanites worship sex, and people and cultures that do that, it's not surprising that they produce a high number of deviant people. And if I may say so, I wonder if that would have any application to us here in America. Because while we may not bow down to a statue of Baal or Aphrodite, we worship them just as vigorously as any culture ever has. If you do not believe me, understand that uh, just this last year, Facebook finally, and this is the only site that does this, attracts more internet traffic than the porn sites. We are a sex-worshiping culture just like the Canaanites. And just because this kind of grievous sin is common in that culture does not make it right, does it? And what Shechem has done is still evil, and evil still cries out for justice to be done. And according to the law of Moses, uh, which is given many years later by God, what God says should happen to Shechem is that he should be put to death. And this man is the son of a local king. So what's going to happen? Let's read on. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah, but his sons were with his livestock in the field. So Jacob held his peace until they came. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with, that, with him. And the sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it. And the men were indignant and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing must not be done. But Hamor spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us. Give us your daughters to us, and take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us, and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it, and get property in it. And Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, Let me find favor in your eyes, and whatever you say to me I will give. 
Ask for as great a bride price and gift as you will, and I will give you whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. And the sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully because he had defiled their sister Dinah. They said to them, We cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we agree with you that you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you, and we will take your daughters to ourselves, and we will dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and we will be gone. Their words pleased Hamor and Hamor's son Shechem, and the young man did not delay to do this thing because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now he was the most honored of all his father's house, so Hamor and his son Shechem came to the gate of the city and spoke to the men of their city, saying, These men are at peace with us. Let them dwell in the land and trade in it, for behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives and let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us to become one people. When every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised, will not their livestock, their property, and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them and they will dwell with us. And all who went out of the gate of his city listened to Hamor and his son Shechem, and every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of his city. Now Jacob initially, when he hears what's happened to his daughter, that she has essentially been raped and kidnapped, initially does nothing. Instead, he decides to wait until his sons come back from their time with the flocks. And the right thing to do, by the way, would have been to go up to the gates of the city, which is where a court was held, and and start the lodge an official complaint and establish this as a legal matter, needing rectification and justice to be done. But Jacob doesn't do that. He's a man of prominence. He's a man of property there. He would probably be listened to, but instead he waits for his sons to come home and he tells them what's happened. And they are filled with anger and rage and they are ready for vengeance because the family honor has been violated along with their sister. And the sons are, who are the most angry are her own full brothers. The ones who are also sons of Jacob through her mother Leah as well. And meanwhile, Hamor comes with a proposal. He says, look, my son is, is crazy about your daughter. I know this is kind of a weird situation, but my son is crazy about your daughter. He's a good boy. He wants to marry your girl. And I know this isn't the normal means of entering into marriage, but I'm going to compensate you and pay you whatever bride price you want. And on top of that, you can, you can, you can, I know you're foreigners here, but you can be completely assimilated into our culture and you can intermarry with us and we'll be one people together. And that's what he tells them. But his actual motivation is a little different as we see later on. And Jacob's sons are offended by this little proposal because what the text actually reads when it says the bride price uh, in my Bible, it actually reads... I will pay her price. Ask for however great a price for her that you want. And in, in, in a sense, how they interpret that is this. 
that after you have raped our sister, you're treating her like a prostitute and the bride price as essentially payment for services rendered. And in their mind, this adds insult to injury, and this attempt to kind of smooth things over just adds fuel to the fire. And outwardly, they show no sign of that. Instead, they say, well, I'll tell you what, rather than money, why don't you do this? Why don't you tell every man in town to get circumcised, and then we can intermarry with you because we're circumcised, because we're part of the covenant people of God, and God gave that to us as a sign to put a mark on us that we were God's special people and that he was going to bless us and make us a mighty nation and to make us holy before him. They're using something that is meant as a, as a sign that they are God's holy people, and they're using it to do something that's very unholy. And it was meant to set them apart from all the pagan tribes around them, and it was meant to be a sign of blessing and, and that life is coming through their, their family and their line, and they're going to use it to bring cursing and destruction. But the counteroffer is, do this and we'll intermarry with you, and you can have our sister for a wife uh, for your son. And don't do it, and we'll simply take her home and we'll leave the area. Well, Hamor is essentially the local king. He's the mayor, if you will, although he's not elected. He's the, he's the local overlord. And he goes back to the men of prominence, the men at, at the city gate. Uh, cities were built in a circle, and they had two gates, an outer gate and an inner gate. And basically the reason for that was you could shut the gates, and then if someone breached the front one, you could murder them while they were down in the city gate. But they were, they were, while they, before they could break down the second one was the idea. But that space in between was where the markets were and where court was held. And uh, if you were a man who was seated at the city gate, that indicated you were a man of property, a man of prominence. And he goes to the, to the city gate and he says, look, guys, I got a deal for you. Get your pocket knife out. This is going to not feel very good, but we're going to get rich. Have you seen all the stuff they have? We're going to get them to intermarry with us. And we're going to then get all of their stuff. We'll intermarry and we'll, we'll be all one people and it'll be great because we're going to get wealthy. And he convinces everybody. And every man goes to his doctor or wherever with dreams of El Dorado dancing in his head that he's going to get rich off of this deal. And that helps ease their pain, I, I think, because back in the day, uh, what they had would have been flint knives. Not a good scene. It's a fairly crude operation and no anesthetic. Um, let's read on, all right? Let's not dwell on that further. Um, <laughs> on the third day, when they were sore... Two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. 
They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. And the sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks, their herds, their donkeys, whatever was in the city and in the field, all their wealth, all their little ones and their wives, all that was in the houses they captured and plundered. And then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I will be destroyed, both I and my household. But they said, Should he have treated our sister like a prostitute? Simeon and Levi are Dinah's full brothers. Jacob was their father, Leah's their mother. These young men are right to seek justice for their sister's rape. But their version of justice wasn't. It was vigilante revenge, pure and simple. They wait until the men are really feeling the pain and they're weak. And then they go into town and they slaughter all the men with their swords, including Shechem and Hamor, and haul off all the women and children of the place as slaves. This is a sick, bloody, nasty scene. And it's being done by the people ostensibly of God. Well, I don't know how big the city is at this time. It's hard to really know how many people we're talking about or how many women and children are involved. But regardless, it is not justice. It is petty. It is wicked. It is unjust, bloody revenge that is far out of proportion to the evil done. And as a father, I can understand I can just tell you, if some man attacks one of my daughters or my wife, the authorities better get him before I do. I get the idea. But at the same time, the law is the law, and the law is meant to be followed, and you are not to exceed it. It's not an eye for someone's head. It's an eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, wound for wound, burn for burn. But it's meant to limit revenge. And this is just revenge. This is kill everybody that was associated with it and take their family as slaves. This is evil, pure and simple. And it's evil posing as righteousness. And when confronted about it by their father, they aren't repentant, they're defiant in their sin, and they defend it as righteousness. And that's really where the story ends. Uh, With God's people starting to become just like the world around them. And they are earning the wages of worldliness in sin and death and destruction. I want to take a break for just a second. If you're an elder or a deacon or a deaconess, I want you to stand. I want to talk to us as a church family about worldliness, and I want you to look around the room, and I want you to identify these folks. Be seated. Uh, This is a deeply depressing chapter. Amen? You don't read this and go, you know, I think I'll teach this to the little kids in Sunday school. Uh, This is probably one of those that makes the top ten list of ones that are not taught in little kids Sunday school, because it is R-rated. 
And on top of that, it shows the people of God willingly engaged in deception and murder. And surely that kind of sin can't characterize God's people, can it? Well, no, at least not initially. But if you give Christians and followers of the true God enough time and enough enough accommodation to the world, even things that are absolutely unspeakable start to be speakable and doable among Christian people. And to even become, over time, normal and defended. I'll give you some examples. Uh, one of the hottest-selling Christian... Uh, it's not a Christian book. One of the hottest-selling books period, right now is a pornographic series of novels aimed at women. I won't give you the title. I don't want to even mention it by name. But I have had Christian friends of mine tell me that it's okay for them to read it and to tell me that I shouldn't rebuke them for reading it because, quote, I haven't read the book. In the same way, there is an obscene percentage of Christian men who are dabbling, maybe not fully engaged, but dabbling at least in visual rather than literary pornography. I bet there are men in this room who have looked at porn this week this month, maybe this morning, I don't know. It's worldliness. I know Christians who cheat on their taxes because everybody does it, and well, cash isn't taxable, is it? I know singles who spend a lot more time wondering about how far can I go physically than worrying about how can I honor God with my body when I'm out on a date or with the person I care about. And many Christians are very, very quiet. They're like Elmer Fudd in the old Bugs Bunny cartoon. Shh, be very, very quiet. I don't want to mention to anybody I work with that I'm a follower of Jesus because that might inhibit my career. I don't want to to stick out among my friends. And so I'm going to talk as little about Jesus and the gospel as possible. And even if none of these things apply, a whole lot of people, a whole lot of people, have dusty Bibles that only get dusted off for Sunday morning when we come to church. And we do not have calluses on our knees from the time we spend in prayer. Because our prayer life is anemic, or it's absent, and our home is centered a lot of times more around keeping everybody busy and entertained than seeing Jesus glorified and hungering and thirsting for righteousness and knowing God. And if these things are true, then here's what I have to tell us. 
that while we might stand back in horror and shock at the kind of worldliness that leads to Dinah's abuse and her brother's murderous rage, we ought to do so tempered with a little more horror at our own. Because worldliness does not come into our lives with a brass band boldly announcing its presence and saying, won't you please accommodate yourself to the world around you? It comes in a little at a time. And in little compromises that we adjust to and adapt to until we are no longer convicted by the Holy Spirit speaking to us because our hearts have grown callous to hearing His voice. And so, maybe as a man, you watch some video or see some picture that you know you shouldn't, and the first time it bothers you a great deal, and the next time you start to feel, well, you know, it's not that bad, and a lot of people do this. And then over time, what starts to happen is you start to feel entitled to it. Well, it's been a long week, and this helps me feel better. Or maybe if you're a woman and you think, my marriage is miserable, I'm going to read this romance novel because it makes me feel better. Rather than turning to the living God and crying out to Him for help and healing. Or we're quiet about the gospel because, you know, no one wants me to be a religious nut. And if nobody knows I'm a Christian, that'll really help me in my career. And I don't want to stand out among my friends at school. I don't want to be made fun of. And over time, we become more influenced by the world than influencers of the world. And if, as I am preaching here, you realize that you have fallen into worldliness one way or another, I want you to remember those elders and those deacons, and I want you not to go home today until you have done business with God. And if you need someone to stand alongside you and talk with you and encourage you and help you and to say to you, you know what, I understand But Jesus loves you, and he is calling you to repent, and let's go before the throne of grace together, and I will stand with you and help you to move along. I want you to identify one of those people and talk to them and let that junk out of the bag, bring it into the light, and repent. Because one of the first steps of disinfecting something that's got hold of your life is bringing it out into the light where it can be seen and naming it, and calling it what it is, which is sin and evil and worldliness. And it starts to lose its hold over you. And you can go before the throne of grace, and the writer of Hebrews says, receive grace and mercy to help you in time of need. Because God is not sitting up there going, well, they better not come to me with that. How dare you come in here? He is saying, oh, that you would come and be released from the burden of carrying that trash in your soul. The Apostle John writes this. He says, do not love the world or the things in the world. 
anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. And the world is passing away with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. He also wrote, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. From all unrighteousness. To not just forgive us, but to make us clean, to give us a new start, to let us start completely over with God and to say, you know what? I've been screwing up. I've let the world squeeze me into its mold and instead of being transformed by the renewing of my mind, as Romans says I should do. Father, help me. Help me to be your holy son, your holy daughter. Stands out from the world in the light of your holiness reflected in my life. I want to be clean. Forgive me. Make me clean. And if you need help with that, our elders, our deacons, I'm here. I will love to help you. And so would they. And the Lord is waiting. And would love to have you come into his presence and admit that you've wandered off the path and help you get back on the right one. Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, we read a passage like this and we do indeed, as we should, look in horror at what has happened among the people of God, that they are being accommodated and assimilating themselves to the culture around them to a point that they are looking just like the pagans among whom they live. Father, may it never be true of us that we look like pagans, that we are not readily identifiable as the people of God, that we, that we would sin like they do, that we would give ourselves over to lust and greed and idolatry and evil in just exactly the same kinds of ways that sinful people who do not know you and who have never met your son and have never placed their trust in him with his blood making the payment for their sin and his resurrection giving them new life. Father, may it never be true of us that we live like the world and that we are indistinguishable from it. Father, we know that if we love the world, we are hating you. And Father, we love you. And we want to be like your son. And I pray that if there's anyone here who is struggling with worldliness, they would repent. That you would, by your Holy Spirit, use your word like a sword to cut through our calluses and our excuses and all of our baloney that we put out there to allow us to continue doing what your word condemns. And Father, we pray that you would be present with us by your grace. Remind us that you are eager to have you have our, us in your presence. When we, when we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so while we are still sinners who have been forgiven, you long to be with us and to forgive us and to set us right. Father, help us to repair what is broken and to repent of what is evil, and to turn to you 
every day, in every moment, in every experience and thought and word that comes out of our mouth. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.